Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. If this is your first time with us, we're um, back in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And the image for our sermon series is on purpose. You see Jerusalem on one side and Seattle. Uh, on the other side, because we, as we walk through the gospel stories, as we walk through the Bible every Sunday that we gather, um, we're reminded that God's word was not originally written to us. It had a specific audience in mind, but it is for us. It's the most well-preserved book in history, the most well-read book in history. Uh, it is 100% accurate on the things it talks about as it relates to God and his heart for humanity. Um, this morning, we're going to look at a passage from Mark chapter 6, which may feel familiar to you if you were a church kid growing up, if you've been in the church uh, for any length of time, because it's one of those stories that makes you go, wow, it feels mythical, it, it's definitely supernatural. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Mark chapter 6, verse 45. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles that look just like this in the pews in front of you, and we would love for you to take it. Um, it's not stealing, it's a gift. Uh, so if you don't own a Bible, we, we want, definitely want you to have one. Um, many of you have Bibles on your phones as well. Um, so if you're pulling your phones out now, I know you're not checking the basketball scores for March Madness. You're turning to your scripture, right? So let's go ahead and read this together. Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 45. Uh, and you're going to see a word uh, in our translation, the NIV translation says immediately. So something had just happened, and we'll explain what that is in just a moment. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, here you go, ready? Walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So last week, uh, Lavelle walked us through the, the story that had happened just before this, where Jesus had been teaching, and there was thousands of people that had shown up, and Jesus had compassion on them, it says, and he asked, hey, do we have any food? There's a few loaves, a few fishes, and then a miracle happened. Thousands of people were fed by these few loaves and these few fishes. So as we look at this story today, we might ask the question, what is this really about? Now, why is this story here? We know that not all the stories of Jesus' life were written and recorded for us. The Gospel of John said if there were, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them all. And so why this one? 
Why is it here? What's it really about, we might ask? And this is where, in your Bibles, section headings and verses can sometimes get in the way. So many of your section headings in your Bibles say what? Jesus walked on water. So that's what it's about, right? Which clearly it is. As a kid growing up in the church, that's all I could remember about this moment. That's all I took away was, wow, Jesus was so cool he could walk on water. But sometimes the, the headings or in the way even the verses are, are laid out, they, they can put our attention on something that's not actually the point of the story. And some of you may know this, some of you may not, but verses and the headings, those are not inspired. These, those weren't a part of the original text. At some point, uh, Bible translators that compiled these, they made the decision to put in the verses where they are and the headings where they were. So sometimes they can be a little bit of a distraction. So what's this really about? Is the point of the story just to say, wow, look at Jesus. He's so cool, he can walk on water. Is that the point? Yes. Sort of. Sort of. So stay with me for a minute. So before we answer that question, uh, we've actually been asking three questions as we've been reading the Gospel of Mark together. The, these three questions are, number one, who is Jesus? Not who you think Jesus is, not who a pastor says Jesus is, not who the culture says Jesus is, but who is Jesus from his word? So that's the first question we've been asking. The second question is, well, how do we follow him today? If we're called to be followers of Jesus, which we are as Christians, what does that look like? And then the third question, what are we inviting people into? Have you ever invited somebody to church? Everybody's supposed to say yes. Why? Why? Why would you invite somebody to church? Why would you want them to hear about Jesus? Why are we, what are we inviting people into as it relates to the Christian faith? So these are the three questions as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark we've been asking. And I feel like they've given us a good framework to examine the stories by. So before we walk through this story, I want you to do something that maybe we don't do enough in church. I want you to take a moment right now, and I want you to read the story again. Because oftentimes when somebody else reads it, you start zoning out, right? So go ahead and read the story again, and think of these three questions as you read the story. It should only take you a minute or two, and go ahead and do that, and then we're going to talk about what it means together. All right, I think enough people are looking up now. So... What is this story about? Now, first of all, we need to remember what happened last week. We're really good in the church culture of taking one verse out of context and, and making it say what we want it to say, right? And we want to know, we want to be reminded that this story is in the context of the story that happened before it. In many ways, this story is part two of what Lavelle walked us through last week. Now, the the, the scene that was set there, remember it says there was 5,000 men, which actually probably means there was fifteen to 20,000 people. Because for whatever reason, they didn't count women and children back then. We do, just so you know. Um, so there was thousands of people. Think like a, uh, like a basketball stadium amount of people. And Jesus was teaching these people. And it says that he looked on them with compassion. Compassion. And Lavelle, last week in the message, he, he talked about the shepherd heart of God. And how that is displayed in the person of Jesus. So that had just happened. And then it says, right after that, it says, immediately, Jesus told his disciples, get in a boat, go across the lake, I'll see you there. 
And so Jesus, while they're going across the lake, he goes and he has his own solitary time of prayer. And we'll circle back to this in a minute, but Jesus does this throughout his ministry. In the height of his demand, he still, as a human, needs rest. Fully God, fully man, still needs that time to recharge and to rest, to be with the Father alone. So Jesus is having that alone time. Down on the lake, meanwhile, things aren't going so well. The disciples are having a hard time. They're struggling to get across from the lake. And so Jesus walks down on the lake. And he gets, they see him and they think he's a ghost and they're confused. And what is the key verse here that that sticks out to us? To me, it was this verse right here. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When I read this, I thought, how have I never seen this before? I've heard this story many times as a kid growing up. How did I not take note that the ones that were closest with Jesus had hard hearts to what had just happened? What does that even mean? Like they saw it with their own eyes. Were they, were they upset about it? Were they, did they think it was just a cheap trick? Did they talk themselves out of the miracle? Maybe all of the above. So why were they amazed when they saw Jesus walking on the water? Now, these are the same disciples that earlier on in Mark we saw were in a boat with Jesus when they went through a hard time. And Jesus said to the wind and the waves, shh, be still. And it were. They were amazed then. So here we are. How many weeks later? I don't know. They're amazed again? Clearly, the issue is they don't see Jesus clearly. They're acting really like outsiders, even though they are as close to Jesus as anybody's ever been. Is that really possible? To be with Jesus? To be with others that are with Jesus? To see a demonstration of the power of God through Jesus and still act like an outsider? Still hold him at arm's length? Still not sure if he's the one? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. Despite their proximity and their experiences, they still don't really see Jesus for who he is. And if you contrast the disciples' response to Jesus on the water with the people's reception on the shore, what does it say when they got to the shore? Everybody was like, Jesus is here. Bring out the ones that are sick and needy. Let's get them here. It says they literally were laying them down in the marketplace. It's like if you were at South Center and all of a sudden the mall became a place like a hospital for people. Like they were disturbing the peace in trying to get needy people to Jesus. What a different reception, right? The ones that were with him were like, eh, I mean, loaves and fish are pretty cool, but we're still not sure about you. And then these people that were running to Jesus. To further prove this point, when the disciples see Jesus on the water, it doesn't even cross their minds that it might possibly be Jesus. They go, is it a ghost? They just don't see him. Their hearts are so hard to Jesus. This is a sobering thought, isn't it? That God might be doing something right in front of us 
and we can still completely miss it. I remember talking to a relative of mine who uh, lived a very long life, and he said to me, you know, I just don't believe in God. There's There's just no way I can. He said, except if God himself came down right in front of me and said, hello. To which I said to him, you still wouldn't. His heart was that hard. The next morning you would say, that was a weird dream, or I had some weird food to eat. You would make up some excuse for why that really wasn't God. And I think that was one of the issues that the disciples were wrestling with. Even though they were seeing all these displays, these powerful displays of miracles, they were still in their hearts going, I just don't know. When when your heart is set against those things, sometimes it doesn't matter what you see. So this is a story, uh, first of all, I think, of the hard-heartedness of people that are supposed to know and love Jesus and that still haven't got there yet. But it's also a story of the unfolding identity of Jesus. How many times, if you've read the, the earlier chapters, has Jesus done these types of things? And at what point, if I were Jesus, would I be like, Fine, forget you guys. <laughs> like, I'll, get some, I'll get some people that really believe. Jesus doesn't stop. He continues to unfold his identity to these disciples. And somehow, they've missed it up to this point. And so Jesus goes, all right, I got an idea. You guys go across the lake. Wink, wink. I'll see you on the other side. I'm sure it'll be fine. You guys are good rowers. And so Jesus goes, I'm going to walk on water Ask them so that they can see me, and then maybe they'll believe. There's an Exodus connection here, for those of you that are, that, that are familiar with the Old Testament story. There's an Exodus connection between who has God shows him to be for the people of Israel who are slaves in Egypt, and who Jesus begins to show who he is, connecting his divine nature as God. Lavelle talked about last night that God is a good shepherd, a good shepherd who provides. God provides food for his people in Israel called manna when they were in the desert. And here Jesus does it for those that were out in the wilderness hearing him speak. God is a good shepherd who provides. God is a good shepherd who leads. God told Israel to go to the sea. And he makes a way, God makes a way through the sea so that they would be saved from the Egyptian army. Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat. And then Jesus meets them there in the waters. In both of these stories, from Mark and from Exodus, um, hardship was often used to expose the hearts of the people. Sometimes the struggle is on purpose. Sometimes God allows us to go into difficult situations because his greater concern for us is not our comfort today, but our destiny for eternity. He wants us to know him, and he'll do whatever it takes for us to do to know him, to respond to him. So sometimes hardship, sometimes struggle reveals um, the things that we placed our faith in that are not of God, and they turn our hearts back to God. But we also know that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes when people go through hardship or they experience this, it's their excuse to reject God, to turn away from him, to blame him, to say, well, clearly he doesn't exist or else why would this be happening? 
And so there is different responses, either a softness of a heart through hardship or a hardness of a heart through hardship. And again, here's where we see another Exodus connection. Because oftentimes in the story, we think about the miracles that God did to free his people. The plagues, the parting of the sea, the miraculous bread that appeared. But there's another thing that's almost as astounding. That there was a man named Pharaoh, a king, who saw these same things and yet hardened his heart. Time after time after time. There's degrees of hardness of heart. Um, But they all lead to the same place. They all lead away from our relationship with God, away from the knowledge of God, that relationship that he desires to have with us. Pharaoh seems kind of like an extreme example from a long time ago, but we see a similar example playing out in real time right now around the world. This conflict in Russia, that somebody like Vladimir Putin could do the things that he's doing to people. Literally, his neighbors show an immense hardness of heart, an evil, really, that has taken root in his heart. So that's an extreme example, but it's still at play in our world today. Uh, Another example more prevalent in, I think, in the church is a heart that is just dull. Just dull. This is more difficult to diagnose, but it often looks like just going through the motions, singing the songs, giving my tithe, nodding to the sermon, but the rest of our life is disconnected from the relationship that God has, desires to have with us. And this is more difficult to diagnose, even in ourselves, because it's often a slow fade into complacency and apathy and filling our hearts with things that only God should be filling our hearts with. So how hard was the disciples' heart, we might ask? Well, they were still with Jesus, weren't they? They were still with him. They were still following him. They were still listening to him. They were still being discipled by him. But they still clearly weren't seeing who he was, the fullness of his divinity. You know, our church um, has broadly has three categories of people in it. Um, there would be one category, uh, it would be people that are non-Christian. Now, you might be surprised. Non-Christian people go to church? Yes, they do. Sometimes non-Christian folks are an integral part of the church because they, they think the community is beautiful and they think the values are honorable. Maybe they're supporting a spouse or, or some other loved one, and so they go, they go to church. They're a, some semblance of the church. So that's one type of person that you might find in any kind of church, even ours. Another type of person that you might find in the church is what I would call carnal Christian. Carnal Christian. So somebody who, who their primary thought, they, they, they acknowledge Jesus, they, they'll go to Sunday school, they'll do the things, but ultimately they're still focused on themselves. That, you know, your goodness is, coming, is, is running after me. They're singing that, but they're thinking about lunch, <laughs> you know? They're, they're thinking about their own desires, their own needs, and their own wants. They're really operating as a Christian out of their own flesh. So those types of people are a part of church. And then there's a, a third category, and these are broad categories. The spirit-filled Christian. This is a person that recognized, has recognized their need for Jesus They've, they're continually asking God to, to lead them and to teach them and to grow them. They didn't repent just once at a summer camp, but they're continually repenting. They're continually saying, Lord, I need your help. 
I know your plans are better than my plans. They're trying their best to submit to those plans. So in our church, we have these types of folks. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I have, I have been all of these. Three. I've been all three of these. Uh, I, I was a non-Christian. I have honestly vacillated sometimes between being a carnal Christian and a spirit-filled Christian. There's a tension there in my life. So knowing this, knowing that these folks are in our churches, knowing that these are the people that Jesus interacted with, what is Jesus' response to the sinner and the doubter? To the one that says, I don't believe you. I don't even think you even exist. And to the one that says, yeah, well, you're good, but not that good. What is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is compassion. In the story of the loaves and the fishes, it says that Jesus looked on the people with compassion. Compassion is from the Latin word, which means to go, oh, isn't that sweet? No, the compassion is from the Latin word to suffer with. Suffer with. It's not a patronizing, oh, I really, I really wish your situation was better. It's not like some, someday it'll get better or... Uh, my heart breaks for you. It's to suffer with, to get down into the mess and the brokenness of where people are at and to experience it with them. So when the Bible talks about Jesus having compassion for people, he has come into their space. He has felt what they feel. The, the Greek word here is like, you feel it in your bowels, like in the pit of your stomach. Which is why when I got the phone call, the text yesterday from, from Aaron Tiffany, I, I immediately felt it. I felt what they were feeling. Because I love them. I don't want them to go through that. So how does Jesus respond to the sinner and the doubter? He responds with compassion. Not patronizing, but feeling it with us. So after feeding massive crowds, Jesus turns his attentions, attention to his disciples, those hard-hearted ones. He knows their hearts. He knows their doubts. And where you and I might be tempted to pick somebody new, he sticks with them. And let me say this this morning. If you are struggling to know what God thinks of you, if you wonder what his posture toward you is, and if you looked at that the three types of Christian and you said, oh, I'm a, I'm a carnal Christian, and you're, what does that mean? Is he done with me? No. You can know that Jesus sees you with compassion. He loves you. Jesus feeds the hungry. He calms the anxiety of the folks who are powerless. And he calls everyone, everyone, to repentance. And repentance, like compassion, can get twisted in our mind, but it, it literally means a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new direction for our lives. A reconsideration of those things. Repentance isn't a, a ditch of condemnation. You need to do this. No, it's a path of hope. Where Jesus meets us in our struggle. And if Jesus is for real, he is God. And that means that he is worth worshiping. So you can put your phone down on Sundays and be fully present when we do that. He is worth worshiping. If Jesus is for real, he is worth talking to. Prayer isn't a, a superficial religious duty, but it's an ongoing conversation. If Jesus is worth talk, 
just, if Jesus is worth following, he is worth orienting our lives toward. And that's really the picture of repentance. Oh, okay. You are the way, the truth, and the life. If, if Jesus is for real, he is worth these things. And he is. He is. Hindus have thousands of gods, not sure what, which one may be true and real. Buddhists are striving to become nothing so that they might somehow find peace in that. And atheists think it is all just a cosmic accident. We're fortunate to be here because everything collided at the right moment. But we know that God is real. We know that he is knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder what he thinks of you. You don't have to wonder what he's like. You don't have to look anywhere else. Jesus is the answer that our hearts desire. And that's the answer to our first question. Who is Jesus? He is the compassionate and the pursuing God. What does it mean to follow him today? What does it mean to follow him today? I think today, from this passage that we just read, that's, the, that's what we're asking this question about. We see a couple things. One is I think it's important to have intentional time with God, to unplug, to rest, to pray, to commune with him. It says in verse 46 that after leaving the disciples, Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray. Just after feeding the 5,000. But you know what? He'd done it just before feeding the 5,000 as well. Psalm 26.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I was in a prayer summit a couple weeks ago with some other pastors in the area, and the guy that was leading it said, I want you to take the next five minutes and be quiet. When was the last time you tried that? Just be quiet without falling asleep. And I, I, I couldn't, my, my foot was twitching. My mind wasn't quiet at all. My voice, that was the only thing that was quiet. I wasn't saying anything. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 2610. You know, I, I have to confess something. A few weeks ago, um, when the war in U, the Ukraine started, I was, I was just fascinated by it. In real time, I'm watching clips of what's happening. I'm devastated at what I'm seeing. And uh, uh, there's a new phrase I didn't know existed called doom scrolling, where you're on social media and you just keep scrolling, reading all the bad news. Some of us have been doing this for two years with COVID. But presidential elections, racial challenges, like whatever it would be that's going on, social media, news media is just full of it. And so I was just doom scrolling for uh, about three days, not straight, but you know, whenever I had a moment. I was pulling out my phone and doing it. And then there was two nights in a row where I couldn't sleep. And then all of a sudden I started having heart palpitations. And then I started getting a little anxious because I had heart palpitations. And then I started thinking, is this anxiety? I don't know if I've ever had anxiety before. Do I have a mental health issue? And, I, and things began to spiral. And I had no idea what was going on or why all of a sudden my body was doing these weird things and manifesting and I couldn't sleep. And I realized I was filling my mind with bad news. And it was affecting everything about my life. It was so humbling. And I'm going to be honest, 
it was surprising because I thought I could segment my life in such a way that those things wouldn't affect me. But they do. And it was destructive. And I'm, I'm sharing this as a confession, but also to ask you to keep me accountable because I, I feel myself drawn back to the device that's constantly saying, come here, let me show you the next thing. Let me show you the next thing. So I think we can see from the story the importance. Jesus modeled it before smartphones of being alone, of having time to think and pray. I would even encourage you on Sunday mornings when you come, as soon as you walk in the building, put your, put your phone on airplane mode. You know, like avoid the distractions. The other thing we see from this story is that Jesus doesn't always pluck us right out of our struggles and our situations but he does often give us the power, the strength to continue on. Jesus met the disciples where they were at. Jesus, Jesus fed the 5,000. He cares about us in our struggles, but he's not always going to change them like that. He cares more about the relationship with us long-term than he does often about the immediate challenges that we're struggling with. He cares about those things and he sees us, but he wants us to draw near to him. And you may not readily see Jesus in your struggle, but we can also know from this story that Jesus sees us. He's not far off. Psalm 139 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. The name for Jesus from the Old Testament is Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you in your challenges. Then lastly, what are we inviting people into? The great contrast in this story is how on one hand, the disciples are hard-hearted toward the miracles of Jesus, but the crowds are running toward him and begging. They knew he had something that they needed. They might not have known the whole picture of his divinity, very unlikely actually, but they knew that what he had was enough. What he had was enough. And in both cases, both to those that ran to him and those that were hard-hearted to him, the response that Jesus gave was a compassionate response. The call of repentance from Jesus is a call to turn toward the Lord, to the one who loves you with all the power in the universe because he made the universe. He is a good God, he is a mighty God, and he is a loving God. And this love, the, the love of God is on full display in both the words and the actions of Jesus. And right now, where you are in your life, where you sit in your anxiety, in your ADD, in your doom scrolling, in your working and your worrying, Jesus sees you and he wants you to know him. He wants you to know that there is a better way. And so the call to repentance is that better way. It's a new life, a new hope. And so this morning, Jesus sees you and he's saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And isn't that what we need? Let's pray together on that end. Father, this morning, we, we need this promise. We need it more than ever. We need to know that you see us in our struggles. And we've been reminded this morning of your compassion toward us. 
You experience life like we're experiencing it now with all of its troubles, with all of its anxieties, with all of its fears. You have suffered with us. And you continue to do that, Lord, in this life. But you don't leave us alone. You give us your Holy Spirit, which helps us, which guides us, which counsels us. So, Father, I pray this morning that we would be a church of spirit-filled Christians that are saying, less of me, more of you. Father, I can't do it on my own. I'm hopeless to change the world, to end the war, to cure myself, but you are not. So, Father, would you make yourself known? Jesus, would you draw near to us? May we know you more clearly today than we did when we started this morning. And may we have confidence in your great love, your compassionate love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.